Right, I'm reading uh, in a moment from Genesis chapter 36, sorry, start again, from Genesis chapter 37 and starting at verse 12, but before that I want to put here what I'm going to do in context. Now, as uh, Sam introduced us last week, we're looking at Joseph, God's diverted dreamer. Because I think uh, Sam likes using the same letter, the topic I've got is double cross. So it looks like we're following the D's all the way through this series. But I think to understand what's happening with Joseph, we need to know where he comes in family history. Because until we know where he is, it's all a bit abstract and we can't really learn from what how he responds in what happens today. And I think one aspect I think could do it, as I go through this story, and it's mainly I'm going to be going through the story and just talking about it as we go along, where would you fit in? What, which, in a sense, which person would you identify in this story? Because not all of us are going to identify with Joseph in this story. And when we come to the end, I want to sort of look at, for whoever you are in this story, what does it mean for what we should be doing? So you might identify with Joseph, but you might identify with uh, one of the other people. So, if we take the book of Genesis at the start of uh, the Bible, the first 11 chapters, if you like, are biblical prehistory. How did the world get to where it was? <coughs> then, in chapter 12, we get introduced to Abraham, who changes his name to Abraham. And at chapter 12, we start looking at how we get to the people of Israel. So we start with Abraham, goes then into his son Isaac. After Isaac, we then get to his son Jacob. And these three, in biblical terms, tend to get called the patriarchs. Because they are the fathers of the people of Israel. Patriarchy in uh, sociological use now tends to have a different meaning. But all they talk about, when you talk about the patriarchs in the time, in the history of Israel, we're talking about these are the starting people. And in fact, for the first, in a sense, for those three generations, the people of God are one person. You've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, and then you've got Jacob. And as we'll find later in the story, Abraham had lots of children. Some of their descendants pop up later in the story. But it's only Isaac who is in the family history of the people of Israel. Now, Isaac had two sons. Esau and Jacob. Twins, Esau was born first. Jacob had, if you like, the prophetic word that he is the one who's going to end up ruling. Might tie in a bit with when you think about Joseph. He's the one who has the visions about ruling. He's a younger son. But Jacob decides if God has given this word that he's the one who's going to rule over his brother, 
he needs to help God along a bit and make sure it happens. So he tries manipulating the situation. And in one sense, he's successful because he gets his father's blessing. In another sense, he's not successful because he's got to run away in fear of his life because older brother is not too pleased, to put it mildly. So he ends up going off to his uncle's, except a safe few hundred miles away, Laban, and starts working for his uncle. From the moment he arrived, he's fallen in love with his uncle's uh, younger daughter, his cousin. And he works well, and his uncle thinks, ah, you know, this, this gives me a good uh, business opportunity, and says, right, you work for me for no pay for seven years, and you can marry my daughter. Jacob thinks this is a good deal, works for seven years, gets married, discovers he's been married off to the older daughter, who uh, uh, it wasn't the one he really wanted. He gets a bit annoyed with his uncle, and uncle says, okay, let's do a deal. You can marry my younger daughter as well, but you have to work for another, another seven years. And he's a bit grumpy, I think, by this point, but he, he's really in love with the younger daughter, and so he therefore agrees. So he's actually ended up, in two, I think, in two days with two wives rather than one. We then find that the older daughter starts having children, his older wife starts having children. His younger wife, whom he really loves, doesn't. Younger wife eventually decides, gets fed up with her older sister always having a go at her, you know, effectively, well, he might love you, but I'm the one with the children, kind of thing and decides that maybe they ought to help God out a bit. It's amazing how many people think they need to help God out a bit, rather than just let God work things through. Maybe that's uh, something we need to pick out of this story. Because actually, it's interesting in the Old Testament that often the Bible doesn't tell you what you should learn from it. It tells you the stories, sometimes, and just leaves you to work out, you know, what, story, what should we learn from what's happened in the past? So anyway... So he, she decides, well, you know, my servant can act as my proxy. Right? So they go for a bit of surrogacy in this situation and decide, you know, she acts on her behalf, she has children. Older sister thinks, well, I'm not going to let her get away with that. So therefore, she decides that her a servant ought to have some children by Jacob as well. And then finally, at the end, the younger wife actually has two children of her own. So we end up with Jacob with 12 sons. And the maths is quite simple. It's 6 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2. So six sons by his first older wife. Two sons at the end by his younger wife, the one he's really in love with. And two from each of the servants as well. Okay, got that? Good. Right, let's uh, go from uh, chapter 37 and verse 12. 
Now, his brothers, we're talking about Joseph at this point, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Sechem. And Israel, Jacob has had his name changed to Israel by God at this point, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Sechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, right, so Joseph said to Jacob or Israel, here I am. And then Jacob said, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. Right, I think we'd better remind ourselves a bit, Sam was reading last week, beginning of chapter 37 of the history behind this. Why isn't Joseph off with the other brothers looking after the sheep? Remember, in the previous bit, he's been given, according to your translation, either a multicoloured coat or a coat with long sleeves. It doesn't really matter which it was, or whether it was both. The important bit is, is that it indicates that he is his father's gopher, in a sense. So therefore, instead of Joseph going off doing the shepherding with his brothers, he stays at home with Jacob and does whatever Jacob wants him to do. So he's got sort of, if you like, the prime job within the uh, different sons. And of course, part of that now is that uh, Jacob has sent him off to see you know, how the sheep are doing. They're obviously quite a distance away because they've had to go and find pasture. Remember also that Joseph has a bit of history about uh, how the sheep are looked after. Uh, in, earlier in chapter 37, in verse 2, we're told that then when Joseph was 17, he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, uh, and he brought back a report and said they're not really looking after the sheep that well to his father. Notice, of course, that the, son, the sons he was with at that point were the sons of the servants' girls. So if you like, there were, if you like, the second-class sons who were looking after the sheep and not really making a good job of it. Maybe they felt, you know, that they were considered second-class, so therefore, why bother? Anyway, back where we were reading, uh, I think middle of verse 14 now. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. So he's gone to where they think the sons have got the sheep, and he can't find any sheep. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So he followed up on the news to find them. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, Reuben is the eldest son, one of Leah's, the unfavoured wife, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. 
that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So, the brothers are saying, let's get rid of him. That's ten of them. He, the oldest, is trying to, doesn't really think he's got enough authority to actually persuade the others not to kill him or not to get rid of him. So he's trying to find a way round. So he says, oh, well, there's this empty pit here, which was probably designed to collect rainwater when it rained so that there was some water stores up on the hills. And so he says, right, if I can persuade my brothers to put him into this pit, I can then come back later, get him out, and take him away to safety. So that's what Reuben's thinking. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, for some reason, which we're not told, Reuben has disappeared at this point. So he's not actually around at this point. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our, our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So, not only is Reuben trying to make sure that uh, Joseph doesn't get killed, we now have Judah is doing his bit trying to make sure that actually Joseph doesn't get killed. So, the brothers are not, you know, they want to get rid of him, but they've already started to, some of them at least, are starting to get second thoughts. Right, going on. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, what have we, do we get out of this part of the passage so far? Remember that Jacob had tried to manipulate the situation because he saw his father Isaac had his brother Esau as a favourite. He was his mother's favourite, Esau is his father's faith. He hasn't learnt the, from his own experience that favouritism leads to problems. And he 
has his own favourites, Joseph and Benjamin. So I think that's one thing to observe so far. Also, we can observe, Jacob tried to manipulate situations. God had given him a promise, but he wasn't satisfied to let God work that promise out. And therefore, he tried to manipulate the situation to make the promise come true. Now, we find that uh, there's a promise in the next generation, and we find the next generation trying to manipulate situations so the promise doesn't come true. But again, there's situations where there's a promise from God and people are trying to manipulate what is going to happen. And in neither situation does it work out well. I think we've got to realise that during this that uh, Joseph wasn't just meekly sitting around waiting to get his throat slit. We get a bit of a, a sort of an alternative view as to what happened in Genesis chapter 42 and verses 21 to 22. Now this bit happens later. This happens when Joseph is in charge of food supplies in Egypt and his brothers come to get food. And Joseph obviously starts winding them up a bit, saying, you're spies and so on. And although they're in Joseph's presence at this time, they don't know that he can speak their language because they're having to talk for an interpreter. And we find in verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you would not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. That is probably, I, I, can't, I haven't worked out it, probably 20 years down the line. So in, actually, if you think about these brothers, they think they've manipulated things to get Joseph out of the way. They then make the, uh, his garment bloody using uh, blood from a uh, slaughtered beast to try and make it look as that he's dead. And they then, their father Jacob mourns and they've got to mourn with Jacob. And make Jacob keeps on mourning. And they can't persuade him to stop mourning. And of course, if he's, not, if he's still mourning, they've got to keep mourning, knowing that it's a whole lie. So they've been having to live, because of what they did, they've been having to live for 20 years or so with a lie. And keep the lie going. So not only when they're trying to manipulate things are they having to, if you like, lie to Jacob at the beginning, but because they've lied then, they've got to keep on doing it and keep on maintaining it. And obviously, as we can see from this bit later, they, they, you know, they got a guilty conscience over it. And they, they realise, you know, uh, what they, in a sense, they also recognise their guilty conscience is true. They deserve it because of what they did. So again, it just shows that 
trying to manipulate things to get either to get one of God's promises to work or to get one of promise, God's promises not to work just ends up with a whole disaster in their lives affecting all of their life. Now, the bit I've just uh, read, it's, it seems a bit confusing as to who's got Joseph now, whether it is Ishmaelites or Midianites. Uh, I think the usual way it's interpreted is that the uh, brothers sold him to some Midianites who then sold him on to some Ishmaelites. You know, so for Joseph's point of view, not only has he been sold off by his brothers as a way of getting rid of him, he's now become effectively a bit of trade goods to be traded between one lot of slave traders and another, you know, as his uh, market value goes up, in a sense, as he gets closer to Egypt. And, but again, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, both of those groups are descendants of Abraham. So they're sort of distant cousins. So it's the sort of family connections keep coming into the story. Right, let's go on now to chapter 39 and see what happens to Joseph when he gets to Egypt. When Joseph gets to Egypt, chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favour in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Sounds like a good deal for Potiphar, doesn't it? Finds Joseph, finds he's a hard worker, finds, though he might not realise it, that because God has promised to bless Joseph, everything which Joseph does comes out well, and so Potiphar progressively gives more and more responsibility to Joseph until the only thing... Potiphar has to decide in the morning is hmm, what we're going to have for lunch and what we're going to have for dinner and order it. And that's it. So he, he does quite well out of this uh, uh, thing. But I think we can look at this and say, well, despite all that happens, Joseph just, he doesn't sort of go moping. He just gets on and does the work he's given. But I think that Although it's not explicit in what the Bible says, I think it, there is actually an implication that actually Joseph is just following on with the same character he had before. Obviously his brothers didn't like him, but I wonder whether part of it, okay, part of his brothers not liking him would be that he was his father's favourite and he was younger than they were. But I think there's possibly also, there could be a resentment that whatever Joseph did, he just did, got on, did it, and it went well for him. It's, you know, it's almost as if he didn't have to struggle too much 
uh, in the decisions he made. Uh, he made the decisions, he did the work. You know, he's obviously working hard, but it doesn't get the impression that uh, sometimes things went well, sometimes didn't. God is blessing him, and he, but the thing is, God is blessing him, but it doesn't mean he's just sitting back and doing nothing. He's getting on with the work he's been given, and in all that he does, God blesses him and it goes well. Now, some people are like that. Most people aren't. Most of us have good days, bad days. Most of us have situations which work out well, and some which don't work out well. Now, you could say, ultimately, Joseph has a situation which hasn't worked out well. He's enslaved in Egypt rather than living at home. So, you know, it's not that everything's gone smoothly for him. But, generally, when he does things, things work out. So I think one of the things we need to ask ourselves, you know, if we, when we see other people, like the other sons did, his brothers, and we can see other people, and we can see that it looks to to us as if their life is a lot easier than ours, do we get resentful? Or do we just recognise God is blessing that person in that way? Good for them. It can be difficult, I think, sometimes. We can sort of... We can, rather than accepting what God has given us, we can look at what God has given other people and say, well, why haven't you done that for me? And, but God gives, has different paths for each person. So we need to respond to that. We can find that a bit in Hebrews in chapter 13, towards the end, where he's talking to the Christians about how they should live. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, it says this. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And I think that is often the hardest bit to learn is to be content with what we have. Because we can always see other people who've got something different. But then God has chosen things for us. He has a role for us. And we need to respond to what he has done there. Now we find Joseph is patient. He's had these promises over him. His brothers have sold him into slavery up to about uh, the next verse, which Sam will be taking us on from next week, we've probably got another 11 to 12 years he's been in slavery. So he arrives in slavery, say, at about age about 18, and he's there till he's 30, working for somebody else, being very successful at what he does, but all the profit of what he does goes to somebody else, not to him. And it seems that even over that period of time, 
He doesn't let that embitter him. You know, if, if I was doing working and somebody was taking my pay packet effectively for one month, I'd be a bit rather annoyed. For two months, well, after three, I'm not quite sure what I'd be doing. Okay, different social situation, but, you know, you could, you know, Joseph could be thinking, you know, if I had my freedom, I could be doing this, this, and this, and making all this amount of money or whatever, or getting this amount of success. And yet, he continues faithfully serving Potiphar. So, when we get, you know, diverted, the question is, do we continue serving faithfully? Whether we are a Joseph kind of person, whether we're a second-class, see ourselves as sort of a second-class son, not quite from the favoured branch of the family, uh, not really, nobody really paying that much attention to you. Do we get on faithfully with what God has given us? Because those other sons, God had a role for them. So, but do we do it in God's way, or do we start manipulating people? And it, now I think one of the sad things with age is seeing the number of people who fall by the wayside because they try to manipulate God to get what probably God has said has for them, but they're not willing to wait. And then, because they try and manipulate things, they actually, they actually end up with less, and the church end, as a whole ends up with less than it would have otherwise. So whether we are at the sort of younger end of the age range, and thinking, how are we going to go things over our lives? Whether at the older end, making you no, know, where we need to really make sure we've... We don't repeat the mistakes we've seen earlier generations make. Make sure we learn from the things which have gone, been gone wrong for us so that we do things better. You know, we've got all, all of us have choices how we respond in these situations. 